Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com slash premium. It only costs $5 a month. Today's podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Prevent data brokers from collecting and selling all those digital footprints you leave online. Go to expressvpn.com slash gold and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year subscription package. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Indeed, where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Why spend countless hours looking for candidates with the right skills when you can start hiring right now at indeed.com slash Peter? Offer good for a limited time. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. The big news on the week was yesterday's release of the September Consumer Price Index. And a lot of investors were hoping to get some relief on inflation, especially considering the fact that the Fed has already had so many rate hikes under its belt and the fact that the economy had slowed down. Of course, it's actually in a recession, but a lot of people want to ignore that. But even if you deny that we're in a recession, you still have to admit that the economy has weakened. And so a lot of people thought that would translate into relief on the inflation front. Although based on the weakness in the markets, I'm sure a lot of investors were worried that we may have had a bad CPI report. I just don't think most investors were prepared for a report this bad. So let's take a look at the numbers. So first of all, the consensus estimate for the rise in September consumer prices was 0.2. And that would have been double the 0.1 that we got during the prior month. And the month before that is when we got the zero number. That's the number that caused 
President Joe Biden to be bragging about the fact that we had a month of no inflation and he prematurely claimed victory in the fight against inflation, ignoring the underlying strength that was going on beneath the headline because the headline number was pulled down by a big drop in gasoline prices. But beneath the surface, we had a big increase in food prices and a lot of other prices that the president ignored so he can pretend that there was no inflation. Anyway, in September, instead of getting an increase of 0.2, the increase was 0.4. So double what had been estimated. And of course, oil prices were still down in September. We've since had a big move up so far during the month of October. So the October number is probably going to be even worse than the September number. The year-over-year number, up 8.2%, was still a little bit better than the up 8.3% from August, but still hotter than the 8.1% that had been expected. But if we still have back-to-back increases in consumer prices that are better than 8%, you're still talking about four times the Fed's 2% target. We are nowhere near getting close to that target. In fact, it doesn't make any sense that the markets continue to expect better numbers on inflation, yet continue to be surprised when those numbers come out worse than expected. Again, the classic definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, yet expecting a different result. In fact, the insanity goes all the way back to the days when everybody just said inflation was transitory. Because I remember we keep getting a hotter than expected inflation number, and everybody said, oh, don't worry about it it. It's going to go away. It's transitory. And so each time we got a new report, everybody thought that the number would be lower and everybody was surprised when it wasn't lower or it went higher. And in fact, then when they kind of went from transitory inflation to peak inflation, every time we got a number that made a new high, they kept repeating the same phrase. Okay, now inflation is peaked. Oh no, now inflation is peaked. And now they just keep expecting inflation to go lower because the Fed has raised interest rates. We're now at three and a quarter percent and we have this slowing economy. And so everybody expects lower inflation. Yet every month, investors are surprised by higher than expected inflation. This high inflation is not going to go away. It's not going to go away anytime soon. In fact, it's not going to go away anytime in this decade. We have a lot of inflation in the pipeline, and we have yet to really begun to deal with it. Most people think that we're only suffering from the monetary policy mistakes made after COVID. And if the Fed had simply started hiking rates sooner and stopped doing QE sooner, we wouldn't be experiencing all this inflation. No, we would be experiencing all this inflation because the mistakes started decades before. We are paying the price for monetary policy mistakes going back into the early 1990s or even late 1980s. It's not simply the mistakes that were made after 2020. It was all the mistakes that were made prior to 2020. But another reason that inflation is not going to go away is because we still have negative real interest rates. Despite the tightening, we still have stimulative monetary policy. 
even when the Fed hikes rates to 4% in November, you're still half the inflation rate. You're still discouraging people from saving and encouraging people to take on more debt. You are stoking inflation's fires. You're not putting it out. But even worse than the headline number was the core, because there the expectation was for a monthly rise of 0.4, which would have been a 33% reduction from the 0.6% rise in the core from the previous month. But instead, we had a 0.6% increase. That was higher than the high range of estimates, which went from 0.3 to 0.5. Now, remember, the core is more important to the Fed than the headline because it strips out food and energy. Even though food and energy are probably the most important parts of the CPI, the Fed likes to ignore those and focus on everything else. But if you focus on everything else, that 0.6% rise is a big number. And in fact, the year-over-year increase came out at 6.6. That was quite a bit hotter than the 6.3% increase from the prior month and more than the 6.5% that had been expected. But in other words, we're going in the wrong direction. Core CPI is going up, not down. The Fed is getting further away from its goal of returning core CPI to 2%. In fact, we're still more than triple 2%. And again, what investors don't understand is we're not going to go from 8.2% or 8.5% inflation, whatever the peak was so far, all the way back down to 2%. So easy. It's going to take a long time for inflation to return to 2%. Again, I doubt it's going to return to 2% any time during this decade. For example, let's look at the inflation from the 1980s, because that followed the highly inflationary decade of the 1970s. Everybody likes to talk about all the inflation of the 1970s and how Paul Volcker got rid of that inflation by really raising interest rates, which he did. Interest rates went up to 20% in 1980. But remember, the highest the CPI got in 1980 was 13.5%. So we had 6.5% real interest rates, which really helped fight inflation because it encouraged people to save to earn those high real interest rates, and it discouraged people from borrowing because if you borrowed, you'd have to pay those high interest rates. So that really altered consumption and saving patterns, and that helped bring the inflation rate down. But it took a while because in 1981, the inflation rate that year was still 10.3%. And then in 1982, it fell, but it was still 6.13%. We didn't make major, major headway until 1983. And in that year, we had 3.2% inflation, still well above 2%. Now, granted, we had a more honest CPI back then. So a 3.2% inflation rate in 1984 using that methodology would probably translate into something that was less than 2% today. But of course, the 13.5% that we got in 1980 would have been nowhere near 13.5% if we were using today's CPI. In fact, the CPI in the last 12 months, I believe, if we measured it the same way we measured it in 1980, was actually higher than the 13.5% from 1980. In fact, one piece of news that did come out this week was Pepsi, which reported its earnings, but also revealed that it has increased its prices by 17% year over year. Now, that number dwarfs 
the official rise of the CPI. It's basically doubled, a little bit more than double, the official increase in the CPI. Now, I think what's happening at Pepsi is more indicative of what's actually happening to the cost of living than the CPI, because Pepsi's prices are real prices. There's no hedonics. There's no substitution. They are what they are. And they've raised prices by 17%. That probably reflects what's going on with inflation. Because remember, Pepsi doesn't want to raise prices. It's trying not to. And in fact, remember early days in the inflation, all of these companies were eating these price hikes. They thought it was transitory. And so they were absorbing the higher costs. They weren't raising prices. If you recall back then, I said that eventually all these companies are going to throw in the towel on transitory inflation and they're going to start raising their prices because they're going to realize that the transitory inflation is permanent and they need higher prices to recover their higher costs. And that is exactly what's going on. So a 17% inflation rate to me is more believable than the government's eight and a half. And what Pepsi is selling is what Americans are buying. This is what's going on with prices. But getting back to these numbers, the inflation rate in 1984, though, was back up to 4.3%. 1985, three and a half. We had one year of below 2% inflation during the entire decade of the 1980s. And that was 1986 when it was 1.9. But the very next year, it shot back up to 3.66. Then 1988, it was 4.08. 1989, it was 4.83. And in 1980, it was 5.4. These are some pretty big numbers, nowhere near 2%. And then if you look at the inflation rates during the 1990s, when we really started to have the change in CPI incorporated, we only had one year during the 1990s, where inflation was below 2%. That was 1998, when it was 1.55%. But we had plenty of rates that were higher. 1992 was 3.03, 2.95 in 93. It was 3.38 in 2000. And in fact, going into the 2008 financial crisis, 2008, we were 3.84, and we had plenty of years where inflation was in the 3% in the 2000s. 2005, inflation was 3.39, 2006, 3.23. So these were much higher rates than the 2% that the Fed is hoping to get down to. But the problem is we have printed so much money since then. The debts are so much larger that bringing an inflation rate down to the level we had in the 1980s and 1990s or 2000s is nearly impossible. The only time we really had inflation of around 2%, and we had some years of below 2% inflation, was after the 2008 financial crisis. In 2010, we had a 1.64% year. 2013, we had 1.46. 2014, 1.62. 2015 was the absolute bottom. We only had an inflation rate of 0.12%. So as far as the Fed was concerned, that was a very dangerous year because we treaded very close to deflation. We didn't quite get it, but prices barely rose. Then we had a 1.26% rise in 2016. Then we started to have inflation moving back up. 2017, 2018, it was back up to 2.44%. And then we started to head back down in 2019, 
down to 1.81%. And then 2020 was the last year of sub 2% inflation at 1.23. And then it really started to shoot up in 2021 at 47 But my point is, we're not going down to 2%. The aberration was the inflation of 2% or less that we got following the 2008 financial crisis, but before the COVID crisis. But now what we're going to have is a lot of high inflation to make up for all those years of low inflation. It's a reversion to the mean, except we're really not going to revert to the mean. We're going to revert to something much higher than the mean because of massive and unprecedented money printing that has gone on, not just since COVID, but before COVID. Look at what's happened to the Fed's balance sheet. It's gone from under a trillion before the 2008 financial crisis to almost nine trillion post COVID. And look how many years the Fed was flooding the economy with near free money. And the financial bubbles that have been inflated dwarf anything that had been inflated prior to this time period. So this has been unprecedented monetary inflation, and it's going to be an unprecedented increase in consumer prices that Americans are going to deal with. Look at our trade deficits. Look at our budget deficits. The twin deficits have never been this big, and they are major drivers of inflation. So this idea that inflation is going to come down is completely wrong. The question is, when are the markets going to come to terms with this reality? Because so far, they're living in fantasy land. Because once again, when we got this hotter than expected inflation number, the immediate reaction was a rise in the dollar and a sell-off in gold. And the same action was repeated on Friday. More dollar strength, more gold weakness. Why? Higher inflation is bad for the dollar by definition. It means the dollar is losing value. It's losing more value than you thought. So if something is losing value faster than you thought, why would you want to buy it even more? The same thing with gold. Inflation is going up, not down. Gold is an inflation hedge. You buy gold when there's inflation. Well, we got more inflation than the markets expected, yet everybody dumped gold. Again, it's the same reason. Every time we get hotter than expected inflation, instead of the markets coming to terms with the reality that the Fed is losing its inflation fight, the markets just believe that the Fed is now going to have to fight even harder to win. But nobody doubts that the Fed will win. And nobody doubts that the Fed will fight as hard as they have to to win. And so since they believe that the Fed has to fight harder They want to buy the dollar and sell gold because fighting harder means even higher interest rates. And in fact, after we got the release of this hotter than expected CPI, the odds of a 75 basis point rate hike in November basically are 100 percent. So that means the markets expect the Fed funds rate to be at 4 percent in November and the terminal rate, which prior to this number coming out, the markets expected the Fed to peak at four and a quarter in Q1. They're now expecting the peak to be 4.85%, probably at the end of Q1. So a big increase in where the markets expect interest rates to be. And so they're buying the dollar and they're selling gold. Now, interestingly enough, the dollar did not make a new high. The dollar index was up about half a percent on the week. 
So despite this, we did not see a new high in the dollar index. We're still about 1.5% below its peak. So maybe we're not going to make a new high. Maybe the dollar has seen its highs. We'll have to wait and see. The same thing with gold. Gold was down, but it didn't make a new low. And the same thing with gold stocks. Now, it's hard to say if we're not going to make another new low, if the dollar is not going to make a new high, because the reaction that we got to the inflation numbers, in my mind, shows that the markets are still as clueless as ever as to the ultimate outcome. But eventually, they're going to have to figure it out. Have you ever heard of data brokers? They're the middlemen collecting and selling all those digital footprints you leave online. They can stitch together detailed profiles, which include your browsing history, online searches, and location data. Then they sell your profile to companies that deliver you targeted ads. No biggie, right? Well, you might be surprised to learn that some of these same data brokers are also selling your information to the Department of Homeless Security and to the IRS. Given my background, I certainly don't want the tax man showing up at my door because of some search I did on my phone. So to mask my digital footprints, I protect myself with ExpressVPN. One of the easiest ways for brokers to aggregate data and then tie it back to you is through your device's unique IP address, which also reveals information about your location. But when you're connected to ExpressVPN, your IP address is hidden. That makes it much more difficult for data brokers to identify who you are. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of network traffic to keep your data safe from hackers on public Wi-Fi. That's why I have the ExpressVPN app downloaded on all my devices, phones, computers, and even my home Wi-Fi. All I need to do is tap one button to turn it on, and then I'm protected. It's that easy. And an added benefit for, for me is because I live in Puerto Rico, a lot of online content is restricted to me based on my location. But with my ExpressVPN, I'm able to fool those content providers into thinking I'm not in Puerto Rico, and then I gain access to that content. So make sure your online activity and data are protected with the best VPN money can buy. Visit expressvpn.com goal right now and get three extra months free using my special link. That's expressvpm.com slash gold. E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-M.com slash gold. Go to expressvpm.com slash gold right now to learn more. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. One piece of news that did come out during the week that should be helping investors to figure out this problem is the announcement from the Social Security Administration that it is going to be raising the payments next year. These are the COLAs by 8.7%. That is the biggest increase in 40 years. That's going to cost the government over $100 billion. So that adds over $100 billion each year to the budget deficits, which adds to the national debt. How could this not be inflationary? And of course, not only are these larger deficits inflationary, which ultimately will be financed by the Fed, but what do the people who receive the $100 billion do with the money when they get it? They go out and spend it. So in other words, prices are going up and the government responds 
by printing more money and sending it to people so they have more money to pay those higher prices, which means the prices go even higher. People are supposed to cut back when prices go up. But if the government gives everybody more money to pay the higher prices, then you're just fueling the inflation. And it's like a dog chasing its tail. You're never going to catch it, which is why the government's never going to bring inflation down. And that's why gold needs to be going up. That's why the dollar needs to be going down. 30-year treasury bond yields are still a hair below 4%. Now, that's the only maturity that's still below 4%. But when inflation is over 8%, the only reason that 30-year government bonds yield under 4% is because the markets still expect the Fed to win its fight against inflation. Once the markets realize the Fed is going to concede and inflation is going to win, then bonds are going to fall through the floor and gold's going to go through the roof. And of course, the dollar is also going to tank along with bonds. And if the Federal Reserve tries to stop bond prices from collapsing by printing even more dollars, that will only make the dollar weaker and gold stronger. But again, it's not just Social Security outlays that are going up. What about interest payments on the national debt? The government is having to pay 4% now to borrow money instead of a quarter of 1%. You're talking about a 16-fold increase in the cost of refinancing debt as it matures that has to roll over. And again, What are people who own these bonds, what are they going to do with that extra income that they're getting on their bonds? Well, they're going to spend that too, right? More money going into the economy, bidding up prices. But also, what about the enormous losses now that the Federal Reserve is suffering on its portfolio of bonds? Because some of these bonds, particularly some of these mortgage-backed securities, if the Federal Reserve is unloading those, they're doing it at a loss. Plus, the short-term interest rates that the Federal Reserve is paying to banks are now much higher than what it's earning on its portfolio of longer-term, low-yielding U.S. Treasuries. So the Federal Reserve is now operating at a loss. It used to be operating at a profit. And what did it do with that profit? Well, it remitted it to the United States Treasury. And so that was added revenue for the Treasury, which helped to reduce the budget deficits. But now, instead of sending the Treasury a check, the Federal Reserve is sending the Treasury a bill. The Treasury has to reimburse the Federal Reserve for these losses. And that means even bigger deficits, and that means even more inflation. And in fact, not only is Social Security having to spend more money because of these colas going up, but the labor force participation rate has fallen so much that there aren't nearly enough people paying into Social Security. Remember, in order for the government to collect Social Security revenue, people have to be in the labor force and working. The government needs young people working and paying into the system so we can keep this Ponzi scheme going. The problem is those young people aren't there working. And in fact, older people are retiring earlier. And so we have this smaller labor force participation rate. And so the gap between what the government collects in Social Security taxes and what it's spending in benefits is rising, especially now with this new increase, this 8.7% increase, because wages aren't going up anywhere near 8.7%. That means the collections of Social Security taxes are not rising nearly as much as what the government is paying out in benefits. So all of this is adding to the inflationary spiral. In fact, look what's going on in the UK. A lot of people are worried about 
fiscal profligacy in the UK because the government recently announced tax cuts in the face of rising inflation. You had a central bank that said, hey, we're going to fight inflation. We're raising interest rates. That's a contractionary monetary policy. But then you had a newly elected government saying, hey, we're going to have expansionary fiscal policy. We're going to cut taxes. We're going to increase budget deficits, even as we're pretending we want to fight inflation. Well, the markets were smart enough to realize that that was inflationary and the British pound tanked. It hit an all-time record low. And in fact, finally today, officially, the British government has done a complete U-turn. They pivoted on the tax cuts. And in fact, the newly elected prime minister fired her newly appointed finance minister. I think he was on the job for less than six weeks as if this was his decision. Like he made this decision in a vacuum. He decided on his own, let's cut taxes. And now the markets gave that the thumbs down. And so Liz Truss is like, oh, I better fire that crazy finance minister who came up with this idea about tax cuts. Obviously, she is the one that wanted the tax cuts. The finance minister was just doing what his boss wanted. But of course, they needed somebody's head to roll. So he became the fall guy. Now they got a new finance minister. But now they're not going to cut taxes, or at least that's what they're claiming. But why were the markets concerned? Well, because they were concerned about debts going up in Great Britain. Well, what is the British debt to GDP? It's 85%. Now, that is a big number. I mean, it is a number that should cause concern. I think anything really above 50% of GDP is too big a number. So because these tax cuts threatened to send British debt to GDP even higher, investors rightly dumped the pound. But what did they do? They bought dollars. They sold pounds for dollars. But they were selling pounds because Britain has got a debt problem. The irony is they were buying dollars despite the fact that the United States has an even bigger debt problem. Our debt to GDP in the United States is 125%. That's much larger than the 85% in the UK. But it's actually higher than 125% because that's just the federal debt. If you add the local, which is municipal debt and state debt to that, now you're at 140% of GDP. We're in a much bigger fiscal mess than Great Britain. So selling pounds and buying dollars because you're worried that Britain has too much debt is jumping from the frying pan into the fire. But why are people doing that? Because America's debt doesn't matter because America has the reserve currency. America is the currency that you buy when you're worried about something. It doesn't matter if we have a bigger problem than the problem that you're worried about. You still buy it. In fact, the most ironic thing is I remember when S&P downgraded U.S. Treasuries. It was the first time that it happened. They downgraded U.S. Treasuries. And people were so worried about the downgrade of U.S. Treasuries that there was a flight to quality into U.S. Treasuries. So people bought U.S. Treasuries as a safe haven from U.S. Treasuries. That shows you how ridiculous it is. Well, it's ridiculous for anybody worried about a country having too much debt to sell that country's currency and then buy the U.S. dollar, which has even more debt. And the reason that you got to count the state debt and the local debt, and of course, even if you don't count that, we're still way above Great Britain, but you got to count that debt because the state governments and the local governments are drawing off of the same tax base 
as the federal government. The reason that debt to GDP is important is because you have to look at the size of the claim that a government has on its tax base. Well, in the UK, pretty much all the debt is on a national level. They don't have the states like we do, and they don't have all the municipalities. So we have so many levels of debt But all of these governments are trying to get blood from the same turnips because Americans are broke. We have no savings. So can we possibly repay this debt? Of course not. Repaying the debt is impossible. So what's going to happen? We're going to default. There's only two possible ways we can default. The honest way and the dishonest way. But either is a disaster if you own U.S. Treasuries. The honest way is just to admit that we can't pay and we default. We restructure the debt and we tell our creditors you're not going to get your money. But I don't think politicians have the integrity to do that. They're going to take the coward's way out. They're going to print. They're going to inflate the debt away. That's the only way out of this problem is to monetize that debt and repudiate it through inflation, which is why it's crazy for anybody to believe that the Fed is going to succeed in reducing inflation back down to 2%. It can't succeed. In fact, the only hope it has of getting out of this debt is to inflate it away. And they're not going to inflate it away 2% a year. They're going to have to have a much higher rate of inflation to have any hope of bringing this debt down to a manageable level in real terms, especially when interest rates go up. Because the only reason we've been able to afford the debt now is because interest rates were so low. In fact, today, the yield on a U.S. Treasury 10-year note closed above 4%. This is the first time we've really been above 4% in yields since 2010. And we only really peaked above 4% very briefly and came right back down. In contrast, now 4% is merely a step on the road to 5%. In fact, the move from 4 to 5% will probably be quicker than the move from 3 to 4%. And in fact, if you look at the yields on U.S. Treasuries, even the six-month now is well above 4%. It's at 4.28. The one-year Treasury bill closed the week at 4 spot. The two-year is slightly higher at 4.5%. That is the peak of the yield curve right now, 4.5%. But we are going higher, five-year, 4.27, 10-year, 4.02. The only maturity that's still below 4%, that's more than three months, is the 30-year, and it closed the week at 3.99. So almost at 4%, and I think we're going to be moving much higher next week. But here is the huge problem. The last time yields on the 10-year Treasury even got above 4% was 2010, but we're about to take out the high next week from 2008. But back then, the national debt was still below $9 trillion. It didn't even get above $10 trillion until after the 2008 financial crisis. The national debt is now above $31 trillion. So we have more than triple the debt we had the last time yields were at 4%. Well, how is it possible that we were able to handle triple the debt? Well, it was because interest rates were so low. That was the reason. And in fact, Janet Yellen admitted that herself about a year ago when some reporter asked her, aren't you worried about the size of the debt? And her answer was no. We're not worried about the debt at all because it doesn't matter how big it is. What you have to look at is the interest rate to service it. We've got low interest rates. And so even though we have a huge debt, the cost to pay the interest on that debt is really low. Well, what Janet Yellen was overlooking back then was the fact that these low interest rates weren't here to stay. 
that low interest rates could become high interest rates. And so since you have no control over those interest rates, if interest rates go up, then you're screwed. I mean, basically, Janet Yellen was betting the farm on the fact that interest rates would stay low indefinitely. Well, why would they do that? Well, because she was clueless as to what was about to happen with inflation. And so she was clueless as to what was about to happen to the cost of servicing the national debt. In other words, she's completely incompetent. She is the secretary of the Treasury, and she wasn't even worried about a $30 trillion national debt because interest rates were at zero. Knowing that they couldn't stay at zero indefinitely, the time to do something about the problem was before it became a crisis. Well, now we are on the verge of a crisis, and they've done nothing. In fact, the most incompetent economists are the ones that work for the Federal Reserve. And if you're incompetent enough, you'll get promoted to chairman of the Federal Reserve. That's what happened with Ben Bernanke. And in fact, Ben Bernanke's incompetence was now officially recognized by the Nobel Prize Committee because they awarded Ben Bernanke the Nobel Prize in economics. Now, if anyone was less deserving of a prize in economics, it's Ben Bernanke. After all, what did Ben Bernanke do? He helped create the 2008 financial crisis. Now, I'd say that the lion's share of the blame went to his boss, Alan Greenspan, but Bernanke still played a pretty big role as vice chairman while Greenspan was chairman. And then he took over in the two years that preceded the financial crisis and was completely clueless as to what was going to happen. In fact, if anything, Ben Bernanke assuring everybody that subprime was contained and that there was nothing to worry about, that comment alone should disqualify him from ever winning any prize in economics, let alone the Nobel Prize. But again, in order to win a Nobel Prize in economics, you basically have to flunk an exam in Econ 101. Obviously, the people who win these prizes are not good economists. They're just well-connected. I think the Nobel Committee just wants to recognize these Keynesian economists like Paul Krugman, who's got a Nobel Prize, just to kind of reinforce the status quo and help con the public into thinking that leaders at central banks know what they're doing and trying to absolve them of the responsibility for having created the very problems that they're attempting to solve by awarding them these prizes that they clearly don't deserve. Ben Bernanke doesn't know anything about economics. If he did, he would have known there was a problem in the subprime market. He would have known that that problem wasn't contained. And in fact, go back to the early days of the crisis. If he understood economics, he wouldn't have responded with 0% interest rates. He wouldn't have done quantitative easing because Ben Bernanke sowed the seeds of the inflation that we are experiencing right now. So the whole world is worried about inflation. And the main reason inflation is so bad is because of Ben Bernanke. And yet at the very time we're worried about all this inflation, we're giving the guy that created it the Nobel Prize in economics. What Bernanke should have done if he understood economics was the opposite of what he actually did do. And remember, one of the things that Ben Bernanke assured Congress back in 2009 was that the Federal Reserve was not monetizing the debt. Now, what excuse did Ben Bernanke use to tell Congress that the Fed was not monetizing the debt? Well, he said quantitative easing was just a temporary situation, that the Federal Reserve had no intention of holding any of the bonds it was buying. 
It was just temporarily buying them to kind of relieve the liquidity problems in the market. And that as soon as the emergency was over, well, the Federal Reserve was just going to sell those treasuries back into the market. And so there really wouldn't be a permanent increase in the size of the Fed's balance sheet. And so it really wasn't monetizing the debt. Well, again, those comments should disqualify him from winning the Nobel Prize because he couldn't have been more wrong. Why do we have a $9 trillion balance sheet right now? Because the Federal Reserve was monetizing the debt, the opposite of what Bet Bernanke claimed. But if you go back to the time that those comments were made, I immediately criticized Ben Bernanke and said he was wrong. There's no way that the Fed is going to sell these bonds because who are they going to sell them to? I mentioned at the time that the Fed had checked us into a monetary roach motel. Why did I use that analogy? Because I knew the minute the Fed did QE and bought all those bonds, there was no way to get rid of those bonds without collapsing the bond market. It bought them to artificially prop up the market. It wasn't going to turn around and sell them and reverse what it did. So I knew that it was going to keep those bonds. I knew that Ben Bernanke had monetized the debt. Now, either Ben Bernanke didn't know it or he lied about it, but either way, he shouldn't be winning a Nobel Prize in economics. Rapid growth for your business doesn't have to come with growing pains. When you have ambitious hiring goals, you need a partner that can help you realize them. You need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Why spend countless hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you could do it all with Indeed? Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed's instant match, assessments, and virtual interviews. And if you hate waiting, Indeed's U.S. data shows that over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job descriptions the moment they sponsor a job. One thing that I love about Indeed is it makes it easy to do all your hiring in one place. Indeed makes it easy to connect with your applicants and virtual interviews will save you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. And there's no need to install anything extra. No downloads, plugins, or purchases. Indeed allows you to consolidate the entire hiring process all in one place. So join the over 3 million businesses worldwide that are already using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows that when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in their database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash Peter to start hiring right now. Just go to Indeed.com slash Peter. Indeed.com slash Peter. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. But getting back to the double standard that I started talking about between the United Kingdom and the United States, where you have traders selling pounds because tax cuts are going to increase debt in Britain and buying dollars, despite the fact that the U.S. has a much bigger debt problem than the U.K. The other reason that the markets were punishing the pound was because the British government was working at cross purposes with the Bank of England and that the Bank of England was trying to fight inflation by raising rates and having a tighter monetary policy, while the government was taking the opposite approach with fiscal policy and was pursuing an expansionary fiscal policy with tax cuts. Well, the United States did the exact same thing, except our expansionary policy was not by cutting taxes, but by increasing government spending. What were the most recent pieces of legislation passed 
by the U.S. Congress. Well, the inappropriately named Inflation Reduction Act, which was a spending bill, which increased spending on infrastructure and other things. Then you had the CHIPS Act, which increased government spending and doled out money to chip companies. And you had the forgiveness of student loans, which doled out money to anybody that owed money on student loans. So all three of those programs were stimulative. They were at counter purposes with what the Federal Reserve was doing. In other words, the U.S. Congress did exactly what British Parliament was about to do. And President Biden was in favor of the same type of policies that Liz Truss was. He wanted to increase deficits by increasing spending. Trust wanted to increase deficits by cutting taxes. Now, of course, both claimed that they weren't going to be increasing deficits and both were lying, but they were both committing the same sin, yet the markets treated them differently because there is still a double standard between what the United States is held accountable for and what every other nation is held accountable for. But eventually, the United States is going to be held to the same standards as everybody else. And when that happens, it is a major crisis. And the question is, what will happen first? Will the dollar lose its reserve status and then be held to that standard? Or will the United States be held to that standard and then as a consequence, lose its reserve currency status? But another thing that Liz Truss and Joe Biden have in common is that their respected parties are losing a lot of popularity in the polls based on inflation running out of control and based on the recent gyrations in the market. And in fact, the last time I talked about the midterm elections, I mentioned that even though the Democrats were still favored to win the U.S. Senate, I thought that the Republicans might upset based on the trajectory of the economy. And in fact, I just looked up on predicted and now the Republicans are even money. They were underdogs to win the Senate And now it's 50-50, and I still think they're likely to win, especially now that the momentum is swinging in their direction. And the inflation report that we just got is the last one we're going to have before the election, and it's bad. Meanwhile, the markets continue to fall. They're making new lows. So I think the odds of the Republicans getting a clean sweep in Congress have increased where they get both the House and the Senate. And President Biden is certainly not doing himself or his party any favors by continuing to deny the problems underlying the U.S. economy. I watched an interview the other day, and while Biden conceded that there's a remote possibility that the country may slip into a recession, he said that it's very unlikely that we will go into one, apart from the fact that we're actually in one right now. But he said that if we end up with a recession, it's going to be very short very shallow, really mild recession. Why would that be? There is no reason to believe that this recession would be short or shallow. In fact, all the evidence is that it will be long and deep because we have so many problems that dwarf the problems that we've had going into prior recessions. We have got a massive inflation problem on our hands Normally, when the economy goes into a recession, the Federal Reserve tries to simulate the economy by creating inflation. But since this recession has been caused by inflation, the Federal Reserve has been sidelined. Not only can't the Fed stimulate the economy, it's going to be forced to sedate the economy. In other words, instead of helping the economy up, the Fed is going to have to kick the economy while it's down. 
Also, while I'm talking a lot about the Bank of England, and in fact, the Bank of England is in the news a lot recently, I'm actually going to be debating monetary policy with a guy who used to work for the Bank of England. The debate is going to be held at the Traders Summit. This is an online, live, virtual conference that's going to take place from October 21st to the 23rd. Registration is free, so I would urge you to attend. I think it's going to be a very lively debate. In order to register, you just go to www.tsevent.net. Again, that's www.tsevent.net. But I want to wrap up today's podcast by turning my attention to the markets, not just how the markets performed on the week, but particularly what happened to the markets on Thursday, the day we got that hotter than expected CPI number. Now, before the number came out, the markets were trading higher. In fact, the Dow was up better than 300 points going in to the CPI. And I think that's because we got the news coming out of the UK about the about face on the tax cuts. And so traders just started buying stocks and buying bonds, completely forgetting about the fact that they were about to get the CPI number. And so as soon as that bombshell was dropped on the markets, they tanked. The Dow went from up 300 to down about 600. So almost an immediate 900 point drop. Again, gold went down, Bitcoin went down, the dollar went up, Bonds went down. All of the reactions that you would expect because they're the exact reactions that we've been getting every time we get these worse than expected inflation numbers. Of course, at some point, the markets are going to understand the proper reaction to these worse than expected inflation numbers. And instead of buying dollars and selling gold, they'll sell dollars and buy gold. But that day was not Thursday. The markets are continuing to do the wrong thing because they still don't understand what's going to happen. But then we actually had a sharp reversal in the markets, particularly the stock market. And the Dow Jones went from down 600 points to up better than 900 points. So a 1,500-point rally off the lows. The Dow closed up about 800 points. And of course, a lot of people who saw that big rally were fooled and they thought, oh, the bottom is in. See, the markets rallied on bad news. This is indicative of a bottom. This is how bear markets work. They have these big rallies to try to sucker in new longs. There is no bottom. Yes, I do believe that there were people who had been selling stocks worried that we might get surprised by a hotter-than-expected CPI. When we got that hotter-than-expected CPI, it was a buy-the-rumor-sell-the-fact. I think a lot of the shorts who came into the market, short stocks, covered on that sell-off, and then the rally probably suckered in some new longs, and that's why we had the big rally. But the news was still horrible, and in fact, today, the Dow surrendered about half of yesterday's gain. It was down about 400 points. And the Dow was the only major stock market index to finish positive on the week. The Dow ended the week up 1.1%, but it still finished the week 19.8% below its high. So just below the official 20% bear market territory. But the S&P 500 had another down week despite a big day on Thursday. Those gains were erased on Friday. The S&P finished the week down 1.5%. It's now 26% below its record high. 
Russell 2000 also down 1.2% on the week. It's 32% below its high. The weakest index was the NASDAQ. It finished the week down 3.1% despite a huge gain on Thursday. It's now off 36% from its record high set in January of this year. But the more speculative names in the NASDAQ, the Kathy Wood ARK Innovation ETF, that was down 9.4% on the week. It made a new 52-week low. Finally, I've been warning that I expected this fund to make a new 52-week low. It had avoided it for a while. Well, now that prediction has come true. And ARK closed down 79% below its record high. And it's still headed much lower. In fact, it was led lower today by its largest position, Tesla, which also hit a 52-week low today. Tesla shares closed down just under 8%, finishing the day right on their lows. The stock is now down better than 50% from its record high. Tesla is set to report earnings next week. And if it misses, it could be a huge crash in that stock, which will obviously take ARC down along with it. In fact, all the stock market indexes closed out the day on their lows. Once again, I'm going to raise the specter of a Black Monday. Again, we're still in October, the month notorious for stock market crashes. Now, I realize that every time we have one of these week Fridays, we don't follow up with a crash on Monday. I think if we ever do get a big crash on Monday, that probably will mark a short-term low. And in fact, it even could mark the low if the crash is big enough and it causes the Fed to pivot. Of course, when the Fed does pivot, The types of stocks that did the best during the bubble are not going to be the stocks that lead the recovery. It's going to be a completely different set of stocks. In fact, Kathy Wood just penned an open letter to the Fed in which she warned that the Fed's inflation fight was risking creating an economic bust. Now, of course, the real bust that she's worried about is the one that's taking place in her flagship fund down almost 80% and headed much lower. So she clearly wants the Fed to bail her out and pivot. But what she doesn't understand is that we're going to get that pivot at some point, but it's not going to help the types of stocks that she owns. It's going to help the types of stocks that she's shunned. It's going to be the value stocks, the dividend-paying stocks, the inflation-hedge-type stocks that are going to lead the way in the next bull market. The type of stocks that she owns, the money-losing companies, pay no dividends, have no earnings. Many of these stocks, even if they get a dead cat bounce early in the pivot, are going to end up dying and going bankrupt. Bitcoin also got clobbered on Thursday following the CPI. In fact, it almost broke 18,000. It got below 18,200. And then it reversed and rallied back with all of the other risk assets. And it almost hit 20,000. I think the high was 19,950, something like that. So about an $1,800 rally. Now, Bitcoin surrendered some of those gains today. In fact, as I'm recording this podcast on Friday evening, Bitcoin is about 19,200. GBTC, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, also dropped on the week but only about 1.7%. But that trust is now better than 80% below its record high. And it closed out the week at a 36% discount to its net asset value. That's about as wide a discount 
as that trust has had, and it bodes ill for Bitcoin next week. I've been saying Bitcoin has been teetering on the edge of a collapse, and I don't think it can avoid that collapse much longer. In fact, the Grayscale Trust is once again trying to pressure the SEC through a lawsuit to approve converting the trust into an ETF. And one of the only reasons that people may be buying it is because if they succeed in this appeal, they'll be able to sell out and get the full value. And so if you buy something at a 36% discount to NAV, and then it becomes an open-ended ETF, you can sell out at full value, and that's a huge gain. But I think it's a long shot that this is going to happen. I don't think they're going to be able to get the SEC to change his mind. I think it has broad powers to decide what it wants to approve and what it doesn't. And I don't even think Grayscale wants to win. I think the whole thing is a ruse because they're trying to create demand for the shares. But if they really cared about their clients, if they really wanted to close the gap between the price and the NAV, it's easy to do. All they have to do is take some of the Bitcoin that they own, sell them, get cash, and then use that cash to buy back their shares and keep doing that until the discount goes away. The reason they don't want to do that is one, it'll crash the price of Bitcoin because they're going to have to sell a lot of Bitcoin to raise the cash to close that gap. But B, in so doing, they reduce their assets under management. And so the huge 2% a year fee that they collect for doing nothing will go down because now their assets under management will go down because they're going to be selling Bitcoin and buying back stock. So they care more about collecting their fees than closing that discount. Once again, moving from fool's gold to actual gold, gold itself actually had a worse week than Bitcoin, I think. Gold was down about 3%. It closed out the week at 1645 again, getting clobbered in the final two days of the week because inflation surprised to the upside. That should be good news for gold. Instead, it's bad news because investors still don't understand what it portends. But eventually, they will. But before they figure it out, they are giving gold away. And all it is is a buying opportunity for the people who understand. So the people who are listening to me that know how this is going to play out, you're able to buy more gold at a price that's much lower than what you should be buying if more people understood the reality of inflation. And in fact, silver had an even bigger down week. Silver had been outperforming and it really got clobbered this week. It was down about 9%. It closed the week at $18.23. But again, neither gold or silver made new lows on this move, something that the stock market did. So on a relative basis, the metals are holding up better than the stock market. And even though the gold and silver mining stocks got beat up on the week with a GDX down 6.8% and the GDXJ down 7.6%, they did not make new lows. So maybe this is an indication that we've seen the lows. It's a little premature to tell based on that ridiculous reaction to Thursday's CPI number, but it's still possible that we have. But even if we haven't, these are incredible bargains in that sector and people should be buying. And in fact, one of the reasons that the markets were so weak on Friday is while we got hotter than expected inflation news on Thursday, we got cooler than expected retail sales news today. They were looking for retail sales to go up by 0.2. Instead, they were flat, unchanged, although X vehicles, they got a plus 0.1 instead of a minus 0.1. Although if you take out vehicles and gasoline, 
we rose just 0.3 as opposed to the 0.4 that had been expected. But remember, none of these numbers are adjusted for inflation. We know from yesterday that prices rose four-tenths of 1% on the month and core prices rose six-tenths of 1%. And so if retail sales were unchanged, that means they actually went down as far as volume is concerned. What's happening is people are buying less but paying more. And this is not a strong consumer. This is not evidence of strong economy. This is a weak economy that's getting weaker. Consumers are on life support. They've depleted their savings. They've run up their credit card debt. Their wages are not growing nearly as fast as inflation. And all of this means stagflation. In fact, it's not just stagflation because what we're going to experience is much worse than stagflation. It's not stagnation. It's depression. And the inflation is going to be much higher than what we got during the 1970s. As I've been saying, it's an inflationary depression. This is a very negative environment for the dollar. It's a very positive environment for gold. And it's only a matter of time until the rest of the world wakes up to this grim reality. 